7, and the other at the beginning of chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 7, I'll be reading verses 10 through 17, and then the first 10 10 verses of chapter 8. Please give your attention to God's word. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria." The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. There was an article recently in the magazine The Economist about the rapid growth of the church in China. According to the studies they've done that are quoted in this article, that for the last 30 to 40 years, the church in China has been growing at a rate of about 10% every year. One of the most amazing stats, and I'd heard this elsewhere, but I actually read and saw the source of it listed in this article, is that there are now, currently, in the nation of China, more professing Christians than there are members of the Communist Party. Think about that. More professing Christians in China than members of the Communist Party, about 90 million. 
If the rate of growth continues, they project that there will be 250 million professing Christians in China by the year 2030. That's all very encouraging for the kingdom of God. Even better news is we've prayed for our brothers and sisters in the faith in China over the years. We've heard about the kind of persecution that they have gone through. The good news is that it appears to be lessening as the church grows there. That many of the Christians are in the higher classes, more educated classes, and they're in more and more positions of influence and authority in China. And the Christians and the church in general is seen more and more in a very positive light in the culture. That Christians are seen by even those who don't believe, they are seen as good citizens. They have high morals, they're honest, they're trustworthy, they're productive, they care for the poor and they serve the poor. And they've seen this positive impact that the church has had in their country, in their culture. But as persecution decreases, what the article was, one of the main points the article was getting across, that as the persecution decreases, there's been a new fear that has taken hold among the Christians in China based on what they've seen in Europe and in America. They actually now are talking about a fear of religious freedom. Just let me read to you the last paragraph of that article. It says, The paradox is that religious freedom, if it ever takes hold, might harm the church in China in two ways. The church might become institutionalized, wealthy, and hence corrupt, as happened in Rome in the Middle Ages, and is is already happening a little in some of the larger churches. Alternatively, the church, long strengthened by repression, might become a feebler part of society in a climate of toleration. As one Beijing house church elder declared, if we get full religious freedom, then the church is finished. I pray and hope that that's an overstatement. But it's a well-founded fear. If you look at the church in Europe and America, if you look at the church in general throughout history, that it's true that the church has rarely responded well to times of peace and prosperity and tolerance. When the world treats us well, we tend to quickly transfer our hope and our trust from the Lord to the things, the people, the relationships, the institutions of our society. And we trust in them. And when that happens, as you look at the course of history, as well as biblical history, what you see is that the Lord, because he loves his people, because he loves his church, he will often send persecution. He will allow his church to come under attack, even by wicked nations, wicked institutions, wicked people, in order to drive his church back to himself. Last Christmas season, we looked at, this is last year, we looked at Isaiah chapter 7 and looked at that great prophecy in verse 14 where it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We're going to touch on that again this morning, but My intent with the next few weeks as we lead up to the Christmas day, as we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
My intent is to focus on the next great prophecy in the book of Isaiah, which is in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Another one very, very familiar to you. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We see these verses all the time this time of year, and we've become kind of numb to the powerful message that's contained in them. But one of the things I'm hoping to to bring out as we study these chapters in Isaiah over the next few weeks is as we put these prophecies in their historical context, if we look at the people and the times and the cultures to which they are originally given, I think we're going to see in a broader, deeper way what they mean to us as people of faith today. Both of these prophecies refer to the birth of our Messiah, and both of them take place in a very important, crucial historical context in the history of God's people. And today and next week, I want to focus on the chapter that connects the two prophecies. I'm going to review a bit from chapter 7 that we talked about last year, but then focus on the chapter 8, which connects these two prophecies. And what we see as we focus on chapter 8 is that these prophecies aren't just given as kind of an apologetics tool, something that we can impress people with and say, hey, 800 years before Christ, or you know, 700, 800 years before Christ was born, look how precisely this prophecy was given and how it was fulfilled in Christ. We can do that with these texts. But really, if you look at the original context in which they're given, the purpose of them is to call God's people to a deeper, more profound faith in this Messiah question that keeps coming up and again and again and again from chapter 7, 8, and 9 is where is your hope? Where is your trust? The year we're talking about is about 735 BC before the birth of Christ. As always, there was political turmoil in the Middle East. It's amazing how that never changes. And it was intense At this period in history, the up-and-coming world power, the evil empire of the day, was the Assyrian, Assyrian. And there's going to confuse you a bit between Assyria and Syria today. But Assyria was the world power, and it was a vicious, savage world power. It was truly an evil empire. And it was spreading from east of what we think of as Palestine. It was spreading and heading towards where the people of God were established by God. At this point, when you think of the people of God, you think of the church of the Old Testament, it's divided into two nations at this time. You've got the northern kingdom, the northern tribes called Israel, and then the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was, where the temple was, and the priesthood was, was called Judah. The kings of the northern kingdom of Israel were without exception, wicked kings. And the culture of the northern kingdom of Israel reflected that. It was a group of people who had turned their backs on the Lord. They had separated themselves from the line of David, the house of David, established their own king, established their own priesthood, established their own form, corruption of the true faith. But the southern kingdom of Judah was not a lot better. Once in a while, God would intervene in the southern kingdom of Judah where Jerusalem was. Even though they had the sons of David on the throne, 
Very few of them really loved the Lord. Very few of them led in the way that David led in submission to the Lord. Most of the time, they too were in both spiritual and physical rebellion against the ways of the Lord. As you look at the context here, you look at who's on the throne in 735, 734 BC, King Ahaz. He was literally one of the worst kings that Judah ever had. He copied the religions of his wicked neighbors. He shut down the temple and shut down the biblical sacrifices and instituted pagan sacrifices even to the point where he like the worst of the kings, actually offered up his own children to false gods as sacrifices. Israel, and to kind of help you navigate through the terms that are used here in chapter 7, 8, and 9, Israel, it seems like God, when he speaks through the prophet Isaiah, he doesn't want to call Israel Israel because it's like they're not worthy of that great name. So he actually doesn't use the name Israel. He actually refers to them by the name Ephraim, which was the dominant tribe of the northern tribes that separated from the southern tribes. Or he calls them Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. They, of course, being north and a bit east of Judah, they were in the path between Judah and Assyria. Assyria is expanding into Palestine. They, in order to protect themselves against the Assyrian Empire, entered into an unholy alliance with their immediate neighbor to the west called Syria. And so they formed this alliance against Assyria to try to protect themselves against the invasion. They tried to get Ahaz and Judah to join them in this alliance, but but Judah refused. And so what we know from the other historical accounts of the Old Testament is that the... uh, the Syria and Israel had invaded Judah already before the events we talk about here in Isaiah. And they'd actually caused a lot of decimation. They had you know, tens of thousands of people had been killed. They'd taken tens of thousands of people captive. And so Judah had already been weakened by this alliance of Syria and Israel. What we find out, what Isaiah had come to inform Ahaz about, which they should have expected, was that another invasion from Syria and Israel was about to take place. And it says in the text that the effect on Ahaz and Israel was that their hearts shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. This was a huge crisis. The promises of God to his people, his covenant people, the promises to the house of David were hanging by a thread. And so not only do you have Assyria looming on the the horizon, but even before Assyria, you've got Syria and Israel ready to attack and put a puppet king on the throne so that they can control Judah. Ahaz, humanly speaking, was between a rock and a hard place. He has to make a decision. Who does he fear more? Does he fear the kingdom of Assyria more? Or does he fear this alliance between Syria and Israel more? Where is he going to bet on the future? Where is he going to put his trust? And it's into that scenario that God sends his prophet Isaiah and says to Ahaz, here's the third option. You've got a false dichotomy here between two options. There is one right option, and it's a third option, and that's to trust in the Lord. 
So the message that Isaiah has for Ahaz is is really a tale of two sons. And these two sons are to serve as signs of God's promise to deliver Judah. The first son is the son called Emmanuel. And in verse 4 of chapter 7, God calls on Ahaz to trust in him. He says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint in the face of this threat. Believe, trust, rest, he's saying. He goes on to spell out that, he, that God well knows what the plans of Syria and Israel are, but he says then in verse 7, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. Instead, he would destroy these two countries. But here's the call to faith in verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Salvation, deliverance, comes by faith, not by works, Ahaz. And there's a lesson here for all of us who claim to live by faith. That faith is often being careful, being quiet, not fearing, and resting in the Lord. Often when you face a crisis, whether it's a small crisis or a big crisis in life, the first step is not to run out and try to fix it, but to wait upon the Lord. That's the posture of faith. Knowing that God is sovereign. Knowing that God is working in this situation. Knowing that God is working all things together for your good. You wait upon the Lord. Not that he's not going to call you to take some great act of faith, some, some radical action at some point in the future. But your first response ought to be to wait upon the Lord. To acknowledge his presence in the situation. And that's what Isaiah calls upon Ahaz to do. Matter of fact, God goes the extra mile with Ahaz and offers to give him a sign. Pick a sign, whatever you want to pick, Ahaz. I'll do a sign, I'll do something supernatural, something miraculous to confirm my promise to you that these two nations that are about to attack you, that I'm going to take care of them. You don't need to do anything. Well, Ahaz, in all the best false piety that he can muster, says, oh, I would never do that. I wouldn't want to ask the Lord for a sign. That would be testing the Lord. Well, it's clear that Ahaz didn't understand the faith. He didn't understand what testing was. It is testing the Lord when you say to the Lord, I'll believe in you if you do a sign first. That's what the Pharisees did to Jesus, remember. Perform some miraculous sign for us, Jesus, then we'll believe in you. That's testing the Lord. But it's not testing the Lord when the Lord says, I've made this promise to you, and I know that your faith is weak. I'm willing to give you a sign to confirm my promise. That's not testing the Lord. That's part of faith. It's to say, Lord, I not only depend on you to fulfill your promise, but I depend upon you to give me the gift of faith to hold on to that promise. The truth is that Ahaz had probably, no doubt, undoubtedly, had already decided where he was going to put his trust. We don't know if it was before, or during, or after, but sometime around this crisis, we know that Ahaz sent a letter to the king of, As- king of Assyria. And in that letter, this is quoting directly from 2 Kings, from that letter. This is what he said. This is how the letter starts. I am your servant. Come up and rescue me. 
Come be my savior. That's what Ahaz said to the king of Assyria in his crisis, in his dilemma. Matter of fact, with that letter, he took all the treasures from the temple and sent them up, since he wasn't using the temple anyway, sent them up to the king of Assyria to buy this protection. And so the Lord responds to Ahaz's false piety and his lack of trust in anger, and he gives him a sign anyway. But really, the sign isn't for Ahaz. It's really a sign of judgment on Ahaz for his lack of faith, his unwillingness to put his trust in the Lord. It's really a sign for those who have ears to hear. Isaiah had been told that, by and large, people weren't going to listen to his prophecies, but for those who had ears to hear, those who were given the gift of faith, these would be the hope of God's people. And here's the promise, the sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Those who had ears to hear, those who believed, those who were trusting in the Lord would hear in that prophecy the reference to the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. The promise of the Messiah that one day one would be born who would deliver God's people and reconcile God's people to himself once and for all. The one who would fulfill the promise of the covenant, the one covenant that ties all of scripture together, where God went to Abraham, God went to his people over and over again and said, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. I will be with you. That's why this child that was to be born is called Emmanuel, God with us. That would be the fulfillment that he would bring. In verses 16 and 17, he refers to the infancy, the period of of infancy in the Messiah's life, from when the Messiah is born to when he's able to discern right and wrong, which is basically early childhood. He said, in that amount of time of the Messiah's life, in about two years, give or take, God's promise is going to be fulfilled. Not the promise of the birth of the Messiah, but the promise of wiping out Judah's enemies. That within two years, that threat would be taken away and the crisis would be averted. And we know from history that's exactly what happened. Two years later, Syria was overrun by Assyria and taken out of the picture. For the next decade after that, the northern kingdom of Israel was basically taken over by Assyria. But as the passage goes on, as the prophecy goes on in chapters 8 and 9, what's made clear is that Assyria would not stop there. Assyria, over the next decade or so, would, be, would progressively move into Judah and take over Judah as well. That brings us to chapter 8, which repeats the same message of chapter 7, but in different terms, in a different manner. He talks about a different son that's to be born, not the Messiah at this time, but literally a son born to Isaiah who would foreshadow the virgin-born son, the Messiah. And this is the son of doom and judgment. First, what God tells Isaiah to do is go and make a big sign. So take a large tablet. In that day and age, that would be like a big placard, a big sign, and use an ordinary pen and use the common language of the people and put this message out there for everybody who walks by. He's not talking to Ahaz anymore. He's done with Ahaz. He's taking the message to the people. And what he's to write on that big sign are the four Hebrew words as they're given there. I'm not quite sure why they retain the Hebrew into the English, but the, what the, word, the words in Hebrew are meher shalal hashbaz. 
Those are four words. If you put them together, literally, the way you would read the sign, it would say, quick to plunder, swift to spoils. Quick to plunder, swift to spoils. And so, what it's saying to the people is, God is going to provide a deliverance. He is going to bring a quick, a rapid conquest, an easy victory by the Assyrian Empire to alleviate the threat of Syria and Israel. And he gives them two, two, two reputable priests to give witness that this sign was drawn up long before the events happened. Well, then the next thing that happens is interesting, is that the Lord takes the message of the sign and then he personifies it. It says that Isaiah went into his wife and they had a son and he was told to give his son the name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Every time my kids complain about being preacher's kids, I think of poor Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Just try being a prophet's kid once in a while. <laughs> Have you met my son? Uh, swift to the plunder and quick to the spoils. You know, <laughs> Can you imagine how he was picked on in middle school? especially after it came true. He would always be a reminder of God's faithfulness to his word, even in judgment. In a sense, he foreshadows the Messiah, doesn't he? Because in a sense, he became the prophetic word made flesh. He would be a walking testimony to God's word and God's faithfulness, a testimony to God's sovereignty over the nations and particularly over his own people and God's judgment upon those who re reject him and refuse to put their trust in him. But then the next section of the beginning of chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, Isaiah again comes back with the same message, but he uses a different image this time. He uses the familiar images of two bodies of water. The first body of water he talks about is the waters of Shiloh. He says, this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. The, re, the body of water he's referring to is actually a man-made channel that went from a very important spring outside the city of Jerusalem called the Spring of Gihon. And the Spring of Gihon put forth a lot, massive quantities of fresh water, and what they did is they channeled that water from the spring outside the city through the city walls into the city to provide fresh water. You know how fresh water is to developing countries. It was crucial. It was a crucial water source for the city of Jerusalem, for the people of God. Those are the waters of Shiloh, the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. This was not a big body of water. It was a stream. Not impressive by the world standards, but life-giving to the people of God. And God is saying to his people, you're rejecting your river of life. You're rejecting your source of grace. You're rejecting your strength. You're rejecting me. He's like the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. They stopped trusting in him and started trusting in the resources of this world. That's why we read earlier from, or heard earlier from Psalm 46. That's really what Psalm 46 is about. God is our refuge and strength. It says in verse 4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. 
the stream that makes glad the city of God, the stream that represents the very indwelling presence of God himself, mercifully with his people. You see, that's why Jesus taught us in that prayer we said just moments ago, when he taught us to say, give us today our daily bread. Deliver us from evil today. Because it's a daily act of trust. To say that I am going to put my trust in the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. I'm not going to look to the world for my sustenance. I'm not going to look to the world for my meaning, my importance, my purpose, my pleasure. I'm not going to look to the world. I'm going to look to the river of life that God has given by his grace. Because when times are good, we very easily transfer our trust from the waters of Shiloh to the big, impressive rivers of civil government, family, employer, friendships, whatever. And that's the second body of water that the Lord refers to in contrast to the gently flowing rivers of Shiloh. He says, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. It will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, reaching even to the neck. When the Old Testament refers to the river, it's always referring to the Euphrates. It was a massive, powerful, very impressive river to the west of Palestine. It was the river that separated the kingdom of Assyria from Palestine. And he's saying that that river is going to come, it's going to overflow its banks, and yes, it's going to sweep away your enemies in the next few years. Syria and Israel, they're going to be wiped off of the planet. But guess what? The river doesn't respect the boundary of Judah. And I'm going to allow the river to flood right into Judah, right up to Jerusalem, right into the gates, right up to the neck. Because that's where you've put your trust. When we look to anyone but the Lord as our Savior, he will allow us to become enslaved to that false god, and he will allow it ultimately to destroy us if we will not trust in him. We end up enslaved and destroyed by what we look to for our sustenance and our meaning and purpose in life. For some of us, it's our career. We look to our career for meaning, purpose, importance, status. And when we make our career our trust, it will enslave us and ultimately it will destroy us. Some of us look to our possessions. Some of us look to sex. Some of us look to drugs and alcohol. Whatever you look to for your life, for your meaning, for your purpose, it will ultimately enslave you and destroy you unless the Lord intervenes. The flood, it says, God says to his people, will come all the way up to the neck. There's a word of grace in there, isn't there? He didn't say the flood is going to come into Judah and go over your head and drown you and sweep you away too. He said it's going to come right up to the neck. And what he's introducing there, and actually reintroducing, is a theme that you have all the way through the book of Isaiah, is that there's going to be a faithful remnant. God's people will never be extinguished from the earth until Jesus Christ comes again because God is faithful to his promise and he will always preserve for himself a people. There will always be those 7,000 people who don't bow a knee to Baal. There will be those who stay true to God, who trust in him, not because they are special, but because he is faithful. 
And that's a message that we're going to look, dig into a little deeper next week at the end of chapter 8. But that brings us back to Emmanuel. Do you notice that? The son of hope is there at the end of verse 8. Because at the end of verse 8, after talking about what Assyria was going to do and the judgments that's going to come upon not only Judah's enemies but upon Judah itself, he ends with a cry. He says, oh, Emmanuel, look what's happening to your land, Emmanuel. And as he cries out to Emmanuel, you almost get the sense that Isaiah, as he's conveying the prophecy, it seems that the next words are actually written by Isaiah, not dictating words given directly from God, that Isaiah, still speaking the word of God, but in his own words, he basically taunts the enemies of God. Anybody who would set themselves up against God and his people. He says, you know, go ahead and strap on your armor and be broken. He says, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Because of Emmanuel. Because God is with us. Reminds me of the poem by the poet W.H. Auden who said, Nothing that is possible can save us. We who die demand a miracle. We who die demand a miracle. Only a miracle can save us. Only a virgin giving birth to a son who is both fully God and fully man, only that can save us. Nothing we can do. Nothing anybody in this world can do for us. Only the miracle of God, the Messiah. That's what Matthew confirmed for us when he gave us the account of Christ's birth. Very familiar passage this time of year where the angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah is not yet at this point in the early in the book, he's not yet given the means by which this deliverance is going to happen. That's actually spelled out in graphic detail in chapter 53. Because that's where it says that this virgin-born son of God and son of man is not only going to live a perfect life among us, but he is going to be a suffering servant who goes to the cross to die for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the means by which we've been delivered. You see, our worst crisis in life is not our career, it's not our relationships, it's not our possessions or lack thereof our worst crisis in life is our sin that's what threatens to truly destroy us once and for all and forever and our real enemies no matter who who they might be in this life our real enemies are satan and death itself and that's what christ delivered us from the virgin-born son died on the cross to defeat death once and for all he paid the price that our sins deserve so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God and be his children forever, so that God is with us. We are his people, he is our God, and he is with us forever. That's the miracle that saved us. Whether you're facing a small crisis today or a large one, the test is always the same. 
Where is your hope? In whom do you trust? Where is your hope and in whom do you trust? When I tried to think this week of in my lifetime, in my generation, when did we face a crisis that was anything similar to what Ahaz and Judah faced in this passage? And the only thing that comes to mind is September 11, 2001. It was a unique time in my generation, in my life, maybe in the last couple of generations, where we who have lived in prosperity and safety and security and tolerance suddenly had our world shaken. And we, our hearts shook like trees in the fierce wind like Judah and Ahaz's hearts in that day. I'll never forget that morning as I was just starting to hear what was happening. I was sitting in my office. I was working at, at my computer. And I was starting to get word of what was happening in New York City. And I'll never forget that before I, I even began to understand what was going on, I got a cryptic email from my brother-in-law who was in the military at the time. He sent me just one sentence. It said, life as we know it just changed. And for the next few hours, days, weeks, months, people were really shaken. I had more meaningful, in-depth conversations about hope and trust and spiritual things and truth and eternity in those next few weeks that I've had ever, ever had before and ever have had since. Because people were shaken about where their trust was and whom their, whom their trust was in. But sadly in a way, in a sense, as much as we've rejoiced in the fact that we've had great success against the terrorists at home and abroad, that our economy has gone through all the trials and is growing again and strengthening, it's all been forgotten. We're comfortable again. We're prosperous. We're being tolerated. And the church is weak. And the fears of our brothers and sisters in China are confirmed. I don't want to be persecuted. I'm not praying for the church in America to be persecuted. But the only other solution is deep, meaningful, profound revival. And that's what we need to pray for. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You need to trust in him every day. You know, prayerlessness is the greatest sign that you're trusting in something in this world instead of trusting in the Lord. Prayerlessness is the greatest sign that you're trusting in something in this life instead of trusting in the Lord. Let's get on our knees. Let's pray for the church. Let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for Christ to be glorified. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the miracle of the virgin-born child, the one who is both fully God and fully man, the one who died an atoning death on the cross, who sacrificed himself, bearing your wrath in our place, that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to you, that we might be with you forever as your children. Thank you for that salvation. May our lives every day, every moment of every day, reflect that trust. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.